is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. This week I will be talking with author Anne Eller. She has a long list of accomplishments, and one of them is that she worked for Dr. J. Allen Hynek. She was his secretary in Tucson, Arizona in the final years of his life. And she also worked as a volunteer in the White House during the Clinton administration. And I never got to ask her about those years during this interview. She tells her story in her 2010 book, Dragon in the Sky, Prophecy from the Stars. I spoke with Anne in person back in 2011. This was at her table at the International UFO Congress, and that's the gigantic annual UFO conference outside of Phoenix. She was one of the presenters, and I liked her presentation a lot, and I bought a signed copy of her book. Now, uh, heads up to the listeners. This interview very quickly turned into a conversation, and we ended up talking about a lot of stuff that was off-topic. This includes the coronavirus, and, and we're in the midst of that right now. And I also shared some of my own personal stories. Now, in a couple cases, these are ones that I have told too many times on this show. And there is another personal experience of mine that involves other people, and I simply didn't feel right telling it here publicly. And because of that, I will be popping in at a few points during this conversation. And each time I do, you will hear that gong tone. And this will be a way for you as a listener to to know when I'm interrupting. Now, I got to say this. I like Anne enormously. She is a wonderful storyteller, and some of her experiences are terribly strange. This conversation was recorded on Thursday, March 19th, 2020. Please enjoy. Anne, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, you're certainly welcome, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Well, we met, I think it probably would have been about 2009 or 2010 at the UFO conference, uh, the IUFOC that's run annually just outside of Phoenix. And we sat and talked, this is going back over a decade now, uh, for a few minutes at the at your table, mm-hmm. and um, I bought your book, and I had read it at the time, I reread it uh, prepping for this uh, interview, and I just thought you had a nice, clear vibe. I liked your talk a lot, and and you've always been on my list to connect with again. Well, that's great. I'm glad I was still alive. <laughs> and I'm glad too, and I'm glad too. You know, I'm 83 now. Oh, my word. You sound great. So I'm I'm taking this um, coronavirus very seriously because I also have lung disease. And uh, so I am isolating myself. Um, th- these are un- uncharted waters that we're going through right now. Do you do psychic work? I looked on your webpage and... Am I reading I, that right? I don't. I, I was doing readings for a short period of time, and then I thought, no, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. So I don't do that. I I get impressions, and I have visions, and I, I'm a dreamer. I have a lot of uh, dreams. And 
if I get a message for someone, a specific message for someone, you know, I'll give it to them. But um, I just don't I don't like to do it on this, you know, regular basis. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, because I'm some of your experiences that you shared in the book um, are very visionary. Uh, where you're seeing things and describing the things you've, you're seeing and often symbolic things. So um, that's why I ask, because when I looked up on your site, it did have that, you know, that you were offering sessions. Yes. Hey, let's jump way back. How did you meet Dr. Alan Hynek? <laughs> well, yes, it's way, way back there. It's like 1980. I had started having, well, it started for me in 19, the early 1960s when I read a condensed version. I don't know whether it was in the Reader's Digest or, or it was some magazine. I had uh, read this condensed version of the story of Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, and that was the first abduction story that came to, uh, to the general public. And I was just fascinated by it. And at the end of that um, article, the, the author said, well, fact or fiction, we'll just leave it up to the reader to decide. Well, my reaction to that was I was incensed. And I thought, of course it's true. How can you question whether it was true or not, whether they were lying or not? I knew absolutely it was true. How I knew that, I didn't know. So then we'll fast forward, 1976, I started having UFO, alien, other planet, other space dreams. Every night, night after night after night, was enough to make you crazy. And I very much like um, the movie Close Encounters, um, Richard Dreyfuss, you know, made the tower... Oh, we have mashed potatoes, yeah. And it's mashed potatoes. Well, I got I got to that point, and I actually made uh, a UFO, a bat wing UFO, out of Tinker Toys, because it was this was so prominent in one of the dreams of seeding the Earth when we were seeding the Earth with life, and um, it just hung in there. I couldn't get rid of it. So I had to make this bat wing thing. And it's long gone by the wayside. But um, so I know how Richard Dreyfus felt. And um, oh, I'm getting off track here. Oh, no. And I know how Richard Dreyfus felt, too. And, and I ended up uh, getting completely obsessed in my own ways, too. So. Well, I read this caused me to read everything I could get my hands on about the subject and everything I read had one name that was just recurring through all of these publications, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. So I thought, well, this is the man that's got the answers. So I'm going to write him a letter. And I did. And I, in the letter, I briefly told him about these dreams that I was having and said, if you can't tell me what's going on, Please point me in some direction. Is there someone in Arizona I could talk to? He at that time was in Chicago. And um, I thought maybe he could tell me of someone in Arizona that I could talk to about all this. Well, I didn't get an answer from him for nine months. And one night at nine o'clock at night, the phone rang and I picked it up and uh, he said he would like to speak with Ann Eller and this is Dr. Hynek. And I said, oh, my God, 
So he said, I want you to know I just found your letter behind my desk. And this was typical of him after I got to know him. He wasn't a real neat nook. <laughs> and that's why he needed somebody to help set up the office and keep things in order. Uh, and it's, But anyway, he said that he had a colleague who was doing a study of these dreams, a colleague in Sweden, doing a study of these dreams worldwide because they were very common. Uh, so I thought, well, this is very exciting. He asked me if I kept a log, and I said, well, kind of. Uh, you know, scraps of paper here and there and some journals and notebooks. So he asked me to send it to him, and I did. And then I never heard another word. Now, that was 1980. 1985, I was a nurse. I was working at the hospital, working nights. And I came home one morning and opened up the Phoenix paper. And on the second page, headlines, Dr. J. Allen Hynek brings UFO research to Scottsdale, Arizona. I couldn't believe it that the place was five minutes from where I lived. It was practically in my backyard. I just couldn't believe it. And I said, well, this is it. You know, I, I, I have to be a part of this. So I went over to the address uh, one morning after I got off work. And it was in a townhouse. And the doors were open and people were mingling on the lawn and in and out and in and out. So I asked somebody, is this where Dr. Hynek lives? And they said, no, and he's not there, but he's downtown being interviewued. And Tina and Brian are with him. They That's the couple that were instrumental in bringing him to Scottsdale. Uh, so I wrote a note and left it on the desk that I had to be involved and I would volunteer my time and I would feed the cat or take the garbage out or whatever needed to be done, but I had to be involved. And so a couple of days later, Brian called and said, yes, come on over, you can set up the office. And it was about two weeks after I started working there at the townhouse where Brian and Tina lived and that was not where Heineck lived. He lived in another house a few miles away. About two weeks till I met Dr. Heineck, and he walked into the office one day, and um, I got to meet him. And then it was about two weeks later, he called and asked me if I would be interested in coming to work for him as his assistant. Um, he said, I can't pay you much. He said, I can only pay you $100 a week. I was making about $200 a shift at the hospital, but I thought, I have to do this. And he said that they were uh, seeking funds and that when a grant came through that he would pay me a regular salary. So I quit my job and I went to work for him full time. Some weeks it was six days, some weeks it was seven days, uh, some weeks it was five days. Um, but it was a very, very interesting time. Well, let me let me ask first, what type of dreams in this dream log? Can you give us an example of some of the dreams and what you're experiencing? This is something I run into a lot where people will tell me that their their dream life is so rich. Well, one of the dreams that I have already mentioned was that one being on the ship and watching the monitor and watching the Earth 
fall over with the oceans sloshing out into space and then sloshing back again across the planet. And we were all so shocked because we knew nobody could survive that. Well, that was one of the dreams. Another dream was a um, couple of ET doctors were operating on my head and they had opened my scalp up because they wanted to change my tapes. Well, they were very shocked to find that when they got in there, my tapes couldn't be changed. They were permanent. So obviously I had come into this life pre-programmed and, and they were permanent and there was a path I needed to follow and it could not be changed. Um, and so they sewed me back up and that was the end of that dream. And then there was another dream that I had had them in my house. I had like about five or six grays with the big, big, dark bug eyes sitting at my dining room table. And I was feeding them spaghetti and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was another dream of a, a black helicopters. I had a lot of black helicopters in these dreams. And um, one of the helicopters was filled, filled with milk. And one of the ETs was making a reference to Sumeria and the land of milk and honey. I mean, a lot of the dreams were crazy, but a lot of them were not crazy. I actually piloted a couple of very small craft. In, in your in, dreams? In the dreams, yes. And that's actually quite common, quite commonly yeah. reported. Well, you know... <laughs> It's, it's pretty common to be an ET. Most of us are ETs. Most of us had lives on other planets, many lives on other planets. So it stands to reason that we've been around spacecraft before. We've been flying them ourselves. It, it's just, I remember one dream, I came out of it and I was scrubbing my arms, just scrubbing my arms, and I had to get the color green out of my skin, or people would know I was an alien. The dreams ran a gamut of everything. And 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 this is what exactly what Alan was looking for, these types of dreams, or I guess his... His, uh... his research uh, cohort, yeah. yeah. And I never got any, we never got any kind of a report from this person about what he found or just how common, except that one dream was very consistent. And that was the sky at some point is filled with UFOs, all different sizes, all different shapes and all different colors. It's just filled with them. And they've come to pick up certain people. Uh, so I think that there's going to be some kind of an evacuation. Um, I have this feeling that they will, that something will transpire that will cause them to come in to do a type of evacuation. Um, but I do think that's going to be some part of the scenario as we go forward. It may only be for certain people. It may only be for certain areas, geographical areas. I don't know that, but I'm still holding out to the fact that, and I tell all of your listeners, if the ship comes, get on it. Because <laughs> if it comes for you, get on it. Okay, okay. Another dream was a line, a huge line of people waiting to get on a spacecraft. It had landed 
and they were taking blood samples of people before they, the blood was being tested before they could get on the ship. So, uh, and that was one of my duties to help facilitate the blood draws and help calm the people down. So, you know, this, this may happen, it may not. It was a dream, but it was four years, four solid years of dreams. And, and how did the dreams end? Did there just came a point when they just halted or they just? Well, yeah, they, they, they just let up. Let's see, it was in 1980 that they let up. And it wasn't until 1985 when I went to work for Heineck. So once I went to work for Heineck, then a different scenario took over. The dreams, I would have dreams, but um, there was a lot more military, a lot more black helicopters, a lot more underground passageways with um, supplies stored underneath ground. There were uh, dreams of mountains that housed UFOs. And that you couldn't tell, you couldn't see an entrance until all of a sudden the mountain would yawn and out would come these UFOs. Um, but there was more military in them after I joined Heineck. And I had the beginning of 10 years of migraine headaches at that time. We knew that the... the uh, Telephones, the lines were bugged, and we didn't. I, I didn't know what else was bugged. But and that, the, and that was Dr. Heineck was very clear about that. Just it was understood. Yes. Okay. Yes. You know he was very, very aware of the military and the government. And see, he was working both sides of the street, so he was still getting paid by the military, and he was, <laughs> and he was working with the ETs, and then he was trying to pacify the abductees and so and how was he working with the ets well he was having he he was having um communication with the ets but the, he never talked about this we knew we just absolutely and innately knew that he was having um contact and who is we you with the other people that were working with him yeah brian and tina and myself um, the three of us knew for sure that he was, but he would, he never, he never validated that. He kept it all very close to his chest. Um, and when he would interview somebody about their experience, he would never share his own experience ever. So that was the one thing I kept teasing him about it. I kept saying, oh, come on, tell me, just tell me something. Tell me, tell me what they're like. Tell me what they're doing. Tell me something. And he would just laugh it off. You know, he just would never, ever talk about it until the last time I went to see him before he died. And he said, I want you to know, and he looked at me very seriously, that I've had my own ET UFO experiences. So he just validated it at that point. Then when I contacted him uh, on the other side of the veil... Oh, here, let's he talk about that. That was after he had died. Yes. And you were, you were prepping the book. You did this as, as part of the preparation for the book. Right, yeah. I thought, well, if I could make contact with him and get some kind of information, that would be kind of interesting for the story. And um, I do believe that we contacted him. Um, 
He talked about things that the psychic wouldn't have known. And this psychic is, this is Marissa Ryan, who I have interviewed here on this site. And, yes. And I had my own uh, psychic, Urigus. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a medium thing. She didn't contact the dead. But I did a psychic session with her in 2009. And, and, it, and how, did that, how did that go? I was totally baffled at the time. Everything she said, it didn't make, well, some of the things made sense. But a lot did not make sense. Now, I talked to her uh, almost 11 years. Well, I think it was 2019, so it was 10 years later. So I did the session in 2009. I talked to her again in an audio interview in 2019, and almost everything came true in, in the session. Yeah, I, I, I think she was real. I do. Because at the end of the session... Um, we had a little bit of time, and so I said, well, is there anybody else over there that wants to talk to me? And she described this man that came forward that had a Navy officer's uniform on and a cocktail glass in his hand that he was holding up like, here's to you. And what she described was the perfect, perfect image of my first husband. Um, and the things that she told me. So I, I thought that the, everything that we had done that day was valid. And I had asked uh, Alan, if he had it to do over again, would there be anything that he would change? And he said, I would be a louder voice. How interesting. And he was, he was criticized by a lot of people for not being a louder voice and for not telling what he knew. I mean, he just knew things that he was not discussing with anybody other than um, his very close astrophysicist friends. Uh, I do believe that with uh, Willie Smith, I believe he was in cahoots with Willie Smith. He was another astrophysicist who lived down in Florida who came to visit Heineck. And the two of them were like cosmic twins. They looked alike, they talked alike, and they just nonstop the whole time. So, I, And I think that um, a couple of the other UFO investigators he probably shared more with, but he sure didn't with me or with Brian and Tina. So anyway, let's see, where are we? Oh, oh, oh here, let's take a break. Okay, for listeners, we are taking our first commercial break. For you free Dreamlanders, you're going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Anne Eller. And for the second part of the interview, we will be talking about Dr. Hynek and her time working with him as his assistant. Now, one of the things that surprised me in the book is that Dr. Hynek was very interested in metaphysical subjects. Yes. He studied Rosicrucianism, or he... He's kind of a closet Rosicrucian. He didn't want anybody to know that. But, you know, they're kind of loosely associated with the Freemasons. And um, a lot of this goes back to the five symbols that I was given on my ET experience. The, the Maltese cross was one of the symbols... Oh, please tell that experience about seeing that those five symbols. This is one of the questions I had. This is actually something I do in my research where I pay very close attention to symbolic elements that show up in these contact experiences. So, so I'm very interested in this. Okay, the first symbol 
was a dragon in the sky. And this was a mean dragon. And he was flipping his tail back and forth and back and forth. Uh, the the second one was a, um, I can't think of the name of it, um, Poseidon. Uh, it was the trident. The trident, yes. It was the trident with a five-pointed star on the middle prong, the shorter prong. And the third one was a um, emerald-cut gemstone. It was clear, and I didn't know whether it was a diamond or whether it was crystal. And the next was uh, the uh, Maltese cross. And the fifth one was an arrow pointing straight up. So those were the five symbols I was given by the ETs. And I have done a lot of research, talked to a lot of people about them. And some people said, well, those are all symbols of secret societies. Other people have said those symbols, you can trace all those symbols back to the Anunnaki. Um, so it's been interesting to figure out all of those symbols, but Heineck had, Dr. Heineck had a portrait hanging in his living room of himself, and in the portrait he had a large ring on, and it was gold and black, and it was the Maltese cross. And he didn't so, wear this ring normally, this was, wasn't a no. ring, okay. No, it was just in that portrait. So, you know, I, we had connections. When I went through hypnosis up in Wyoming with uh, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, this is all a part of that experience in Wyoming. Um, he took me through eight past lives that had to do with this life, you know, things, uh, attributes that I had brought forward into this life problems I'd brought forward into this life from those lives. And there was one life with Dr. Heineck, and it was either in the late 1500s, late 1600s, somewhere in there. He had a telescope, and he was an astronomer, and I was his assistant. And I thought to myself, my God, how history repeats itself. And at that point, I made up my mind that if we ever do this again, I'm going to be the astrophysicist. He's going to be the assistant. <laughs> <laughs> because in that life, I was extremely frustrated because um, it was very unusual to have a telescope. I mean, they were very new. And he saw these spacecraft in his telescope and he let me see them and then he said but you can't tell anybody you can't tell a soul anything about this and it was similar to the way he muffled me in this life it, it was frustrating for me because I knew that the military was involved I knew the government was involved I knew they were working with the aliens he never said it but I knew it I just knew it you know, I had 10 five-drawer filing cabinets at my disposal for many months. And whenever I had free time, I would read, um, read about the cases and the research that had been done. And then I had dreams, and the government was very involved. 
Now I hate to do this, but at this point we will need to take our second break. For free Dreamlanders, there will be a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and we are talking with Anne Eller about her experiences working with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And just before the break, Anne was talking about her feelings that there is direct government involvement in this UFO issue. And she learned this through a variety of means. One of them, which she seems to trust, is her own dreams. But also, through reviewing the cases kept by Dr. Hynek in his office, she feels that there was direct government involvement in the UFO issue. And now back to the interview. And we are going to jump right into where Anne left off. And my spiritual advisor... I used to ask him all kinds of questions about what was going on. He w- he's a spiritual master from India. And he would say, well, many of the spacecraft that you know about, that you're seeing, have come from our planet. Um, so we thought that probably that Hudson Valley triangular craft that they wrote about in Night Siege, that, that was the book he was working on when I went to work for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, thought that that was probably one of our one of our craft, and that my God, that's back in 1985. And did you work with um, Phil Imbrogno? Philip, no, I didn't work with him, uh, but Heineck did. Heineck was on the phone with him a lot, and um, they were writing this book together. And that was one of the reasons he didn't go to Wyoming to the UFO conference and ask me to go in his stead because he was working on that book and wanted to get it finished. And I'm very close with Leo, so I've done work with Leo, and Leo has attempted hypnosis with me. Well, I love Leo. He's just such a wonderful, wonderful person. And um, this was at his conference, his UFO uh, Researchers and UFO Abductee Conference up in Wyoming, and this was in the summer of 1985. And, um, you know, he's he's a contactee also. Plus, he has this amazing ability to contact your soul and have a running conversation with your soul. It it was the most one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And he has and he has done that with me, too, several times. So didn't you find that to be true? I loved it. I loved it. He is a very so here let me tell one funny story about. Yes, so he was do. the very first person I ever contacted about this. So I was in Idaho at the time. I was struggling, struggling. This would have been about 2007, 6 or 7, probably 2006. And I all this stuff had been surfacing and I was I was not handling it well. I was very very insecure and stressed out and 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 so I, I contacted MUFON, and then MUFON was like, well, there's not much we can do. Well, you're you're close to Why don't you go see Leo Sprinkle? So I called him up. I was in Idaho at that time. He was in Laramie, which is all the way across the state of Wyoming, which is kind of a long drive, but a beautiful drive. And I sat with him for probably two hours, I bet, and went through this stuff and talked about my experiences. And I, and I, and I remember how I was at the time. I was, like, very apologetic, like I didn't quite believe it. And so I told him story after story that had happened as a youth and as a young adult and things that happened recently and synchronicities. And, and then at the end of the whole thing, I said, you know, well, I can, like, I, 
I don't think I'm a UFO abductee. And he <laughs> just laughed. He just laid his head back and in this office and his, you know, like he just gave out this huge belly laugh. And in a way, that was the most perfect thing he could have done. That was exactly what I needed at that moment. And I and I think he may have sort of, um, I mean, it certainly seems spontaneous, but I, I think he knew that's what I needed, that kind of, yeah. that kind of prodding in, in the way he did yes. it or just that way. It was a very big hearted way. Yes, and very intuitive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, he wrote the foreword of my book. Yep. And um, I, it was just such an incredible experience. Those sessions that he was doing there, that was at the University of Wyoming out of Laramie, and I think it was done through the college, if I'm not mistaken? Those uh, That annual conference that he would do yes. in summer? Yes, it was. I stayed in the dorm. Okay. Oh, that would have been summertime, so the students were and, gone. And it was, it was on the eighth floor of one of the dorms at the university that the my aliens appeared and um so that was very 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 wonderful experience and and can you tell that story i can we were at the conference and the conference had come to a close but all during the conference people were talking about this ranch on the outskirts of Laramie. It was the, um, oh gosh, I forget the guy's name. Oh, uh, McGuire. That, His name is McGuire. Oh, McGuire, yes. McGuire Ranch. I, and I, there's a lot of stories that come from that ranch. I've talked to other people who've had remarkable experiences on that yeah, ranch. It is incredible. But they would go out there, and I never had an opportunity to get out there during the conference, but they'd come back and they were telling wild stories about UFOs and about aliens and about experiences. And I thought, I have got to get out there. So Doug and Connie Tipton were a couple that were in the local UFO group there that helped Dr. Sprinkle put on this conference. And I hadn't gotten to know Connie at all, but I had gotten to know Doug a little bit because I was a smoker and he was a smoker and we would sit out on the porch smoking and talking. And um, Connie was busy with her duty. So anyway, Doug said to me, I'll take you out to the McGuire Ranch tomorrow if you can stay an extra day. And I said, I'll do it. So I stayed an extra day. They took me out to the ranch. Have you been there to the ranch? No, but I can picture it. I've spent a lot of time in Wyoming. Well, I mean, the minute you drive across that cattle guard and you're on that property, there is a heightened energy. You, you, If you're at all sensitive, you can feel it instantly. And that's the first thing I felt. And then we saw this herd of antelope. And that, I knew nothing about Connie, but I learned later was one of her... Um, markers that if she saw the antelope there, that it was a go, that there was going to be contact. And so she said, okay, now we have to get out of the truck. And it seems to be that you need to walk the land. So I thought, okay, I'll walk the land. So I'm walking the land and um, they're, they're a few yards away from me walking. And so are a few other people that had come out there. And all of a sudden, this herd of antelope spooked and just stampeded. And Doug said, you see that? Um, A ship has come through the window. There were the mountains and there was a window there. 
where there was a dip in the mountains and there had been a ship in the etheric that had come through and had scared the antelope. And then the next thing we see is two buck antelope standing by this rock pile up on the hill. And they were just standing there looking at us. And when I got the message that this is where I was supposed to stand, they ran off. So I walked up to this uh, pile of rocks and I was standing there. And Doug came over and he was scratching the, the dirt with a stick. And he said, this is the shape of the ships. He said, there are four of them. One is larger than the other three. I, I said, yes. I see them. I had my eyes closed at that point, and I said, there's a man and a woman here, and the woman has flowers in her hair and long hair, and Doug said, yes, and I get the impression that you need to ask permission, and I said, you're correct, and with that, I asked my master, my spiritual master, mentally, permission to have this experience. And at that instant, he came into my third eye and he was right there and he nodded his head that it was okay. And that's when I was hit by a beam of light at the third eye. And it was like I was being electrocuted. It was a pink light inside my head. It was a very, very pink light. And it got hotter and hotter and whiter and whiter. My body was just vibrating all over. It felt like I was being like this metal rod was being jammed down the back of my neck and out down my spine and out my tailbone. And I thought, my God, I'm being I'm being electrocuted. But the other two thoughts that went through my mind was I'm going somewhere because I felt like I was being lifted up off the ground and being taken someplace. And the second thought was, we're changing souls. And with that, this white, white light inside me now explodes in my head like sparklers on the 4th of July, just going off all over my head. And I was down on the ground at this point. My body just hurt like everything. And then it stopped. Connie came running over and she said, are you okay? And I opened my eyes and said, I, I don't know if I can get up. I felt like I didn't have my left leg was the leg that the energy was all going out of. And she started to rub my leg and she looked at me and she said, my God, Doug, come and look at her eyes. Well, I have very blue eyes, and all the blue had was gone. It, the, my eyes were perfectly white at that point. So I finally stood up, and I said, well, maybe we should go now. <laughs> it was just such an incredible thing. And Connie said, is that all you want? And I said, is that all I want? And I felt like I'd been electrocuted. I wasn't sure I wanted any more of any of it. <laughs> but she said, we're not, it's not finished. It's not finished yet. And so I said, well, okay, it's not finished. So we're walking the land again. 
And at this point, there is a huge storm brewing, and it's cold, now getting cold. The wind is whipping around. We're quite a ways from the truck at this point, and then it starts to rain. So we figured we'd better make it back to the truck as fast as we could. And I said, well, let's go back into town and get some warm clothes and get something to eat and come back out here. So we pile in the truck, and there's another woman that, meets with us and gets in the truck with us. We went about 25 feet and ran out of gas. Now, they've never run out of gas before in their lives. They've had the truck forever, and they've always had it filled with gas. So this is causing Doug to have to leave the three women in the truck and to have to go to the next ranch to get somebody to drive him into town to get a can of gas. So while we are in this truck, now it's just pouring rain and the lightning and the thunder and the colors were unbelievable. I have never experienced an electrical storm like what we witnessed. And it was during this time in the truck when my eyes would forcibly close and I would receive one of these symbols. And that happened five times with the five symbols. And by that time, whatever time it was, the sun had just gone down, but it was now 1030 at night. And Doug had come back and was now driving us into the city, into the town to find the only restaurant that was still open because we hadn't had anything to eat all day. And we're sitting there in the restaurant in kind of a fog. We're kind of in an altered state of something or other. And I'm telling them about these five symbols that I saw and what did they think it meant. And so, and we were joking and laughing and carrying on. Well, it's still pouring down rain outside. So we finally, I said, why don't you just get the, the blankets and the pillows from the truck and come up to my room on the eighth floor and we'll stay together until we feel that this thing is finished. So that's what they did, uh, Connie and Doug. And the other gal went off to her room uh, in the dorm. And Connie and Doug both worked at the university. So the the dorm parents knew them very well. So there, there was no problem. And we went to my room and we're up now at 3 a.m. We're talking, talking, talking. And all of a sudden, Connie's face started to change. Her cheekbones became elevated. Her chin was more pointed. Her forehead was wider. I, I couldn't believe it. And I said, Connie, your face is changing. And she said, Doug, take my hand. This is going to be a heavy one. Well, I didn't know what she was talking about. I didn't know that she was a medium. And later when I talked to her, she it had only happened to her once before. In came all of these beautiful female ETs. Their eyes were incredible. Their eyes were oh, about... Oh, when you say they came in, what do you mean they came in? They came, oh, they came in over her body. And from the waist up, she became these beings. She was sitting cross-legged on the floor. And from the waist up, she changed to become these female ETs. And one after the other after the other came in. Uh, and they didn't have any hair, 
but every one of them had some ornamentation on their head. They were beautiful, beautiful. The eyes were round and they were about three times the size of our eyes. The love that was in that room was incredible. You could feel it, you could cut it with a knife. Um, and there was one that kept peeking in, in between. She'd peek her head in like, I'm here too, I'm here too, see me, see me. And one of them said, you may now ask your questions. And well, my God, we were so blown away. Doug and I were so blown away by what was happening that we didn't have any questions. But I finally asked that stupid question, where are you from? Uh, as if we would know or understand where they were from. And um, at that moment, there were two two words in my mind. One was the long form and one was the short form. Like we would say Los Angeles and LA. And the being that was sitting there in front of me said, that's correct. And then it was wiped away from my mind and I've never been able to bring it back. Um, and then um, at one point, they said, now, mind you, this took place between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It was three hours long. At one point, uh, we had asked a, a couple of more questions, and they had said, uh, we will now withdraw to let a higher power come in. I think, my God, a higher power. What's this going to be about? Well, here she came, this ancient, ancient, beautiful ET-looking alien, um, female, reg regal, just, just majestic and regal and so loving, so loving. Well, I, I was surprised how I reacted to her because I didn't, I didn't want her to leave. I wanted to stay with her forever. And uh, I asked her if she would stay with me. And she said, we have always been with you. I asked her what happened to me out on the ranch, and she said, in your language, you would call it an initiation. She said, you have been elevated and are receiving, you will be receiving higher communication and direct communication, something to that effect. Um, I asked her if the mission was on track and she answered in the affirmative. Uh, not that I knew what the mission was. I had no idea what the mission was. And what else? I can't remember now what else. But anyway, I felt a connection to all of these beautiful beings. It was like I felt a sisterhood. And I've called them my, my sisterhood of light. Uh, and the closest thing I can compare it to is like in a convent you have all of the regular nuns and then you have the mother superior um, that's how I've pictured it but in such a higher vibration in such a more loving uh, environment uh, so at 6 a.m. the sun came up and they said, we must now withdraw. And you could actually feel them withdrawing from the room. 
Uh, and with that, Connie just fell over on the mattress, took a big gasp of air and fell over on the mattress. I thought she was dead. It scared the living jeebies out of me. Uh, and then this little voice came out of her saying, can I have a glass of water? <laughs> <laughs> so then for about the next half hour uh, or the next 15 minutes, we just were so stunned, the three of us, and we were trying to recall everything that happened. And I was checking notes with Doug. Did you see this? Did you blah, blah, blah. And yes. And Connie all of a sudden said, they're coming back. And so she grabbed Doug's hand and in they came and you could feel them. You could feel them coming into the room and one brushed against my arm. It was an actual physical touch. Uh, and then uh, they said, this is going to be kind of like a practice session teaching Anne how to open her channel. And so we went through this for about 10 minutes and it was uh, experiencing the tapping on the head and the ringing in the ears. And then then I didn't know how to open my channel, but I just tried to concentrate on Doug because they said, uh, think about Doug or think about Doug's energy and blah, blah, blah. Well, it was a total bust for me. I didn't feel as though I had made any headway at all. But um, Doug said he had experienced all of that, that he, he felt the tapping on the head and he felt the ringing in the ears and the hair on the back of his neck stood straight up and something else. I think in his solar plexus, he had a cramping in the solar plexus. And then they withdrew again. And then that was the experience. So um, so what happened when you got back to Arizona and told this to Dr. Hynek? Well, what, when I first met Dr. Hynek, I came in the door. Uh, he was scowling at me. And he had to reprimand me because of what I had said in my speech to the group up there, that the government knows all about what you've been through. They're in cahoots with the aliens and they have been forever and blah, blah, blah. And you're not crazy. I got a standing ovation, but not from Hynek. He really dressed me down on that. He said, you have no proof and you don't know how dangerous it is to be talking like that. So. Then I made him sit down for two solid hours and turned on the tape recorder. And I said, now I'm going to give you the whole shebang. Oh, here, I, I, do, do you still have that tape? Well, I don't know where it is. I do not know where it is. Um, okay, I just was wondering. But it, I just could was a be, it, it could be in my storeroom in some box somewhere, but I'm not sure. Not so, sure. Here, so, yeah, back to back to Dr. Hynek. You gave him the whole story. He listened to the whole thing. I told him about the people that were there. I told him about specific people that were there and what their experiences had been. And then I got into this whole business and he listened very intently. And when I talked about the electrical storm and the time and not getting into town until 1030, it was, he said, you've had missing time. He said, you've had at least two hours of missing time. And so that's probably, we were probably on the ship during that time. And what transpired, no, none of us knew. Um, and that's probably why we were in that sort of a semi-altered state in the restaurant. So um, he, he kept saying, 
well, did you see the ship? Did you touch <laughs> the ship? <laughs> he, he, he wanted the physical. He wanted the physical. He didn't, you know, he did, he did believe in all this other stuff. But he he wanted proof, physical proof. He was the typical scientist. So um, that was that. So when I talked to him across the veil, I asked, he said he was working with aliens on the other side. And he told me that Nibiru, Planet X, uh, the Anunnaki, he said there are actually four different kinds of ETs on that ship. Um, he talked about some sightings that were going to happen. One was going to be at Cathedral Rock in Sedona. And uh, he talked about some some interviews that he had had while he was still here that hadn't been published and some papers that he wanted me to try and get from someone, which I never did try to get them. Um but uh, I, I really felt that we made a connection, and I know he's extremely happy to be working with the ETs over there. But that's the story. Let me just read a, a sentence from your book. Alan and I had many discussions about spirituality, karma, reincarnation, transmigration, God, and related topics. Now, this is... I was really excited to read this because that's not the face he had. That's not the public face he had. Right, right. No, there, there was a, a great depth to the man that he didn't want people to know about. That uh, he, But he was very interested in the occult and um, in, oh. spiritual, in spirituality. Well, I gave him for his 75th birthday... I gave him the book, The Path of the Masters, by Dr. Julian Johnson, and that was about six inches thick. And he went through that book with highlighter and marker, and he wrote in the margins, and he highlighted, and he underlined. He went through that whole book. So he was extremely interested in that that talked about all the religions and it talked about all the masters and it talked about j just all different types and kinds and uh, topics having to do with spirituality and what life is all about and reincarnation and karma, what is karma and the whole business. So yeah, he was very knowledgeable about it. Now, here, I am gonna might have to edit this out here because I'm going to say some personal stuff about myself. Okay, this is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing process. Now, Anne said that she gave Alan Hynek for his 75th birthday a copy of the book The Path of the Masters by Dr. Julian Johnson. Now, I had never heard of that book when I read it in Anne's book. But I, I looked it up, and, and this a strange coincidence showed up, and, and I talked about it at length with Anne, and it was, it was fun. We were laughing, and there was some funny stuff going on, and she was chiming in. But I also included a bunch of kind of personal stuff that I, I'm choosing not to share here, so I'm just going to retell it very quickly. Now, this book, The Path of the Masters, is considered to be quite a classic, and it is a great, big, thick book. And the author, Dr. Julian Johnson, is a man from America, so he's an American who moved to India to follow his spiritual calling. 
Now, uh, this was remarkable for someone to do, an American, a, a privileged doctor, to leave it all behind, leave everything in America and travel to India and give it all up. And he wrote a series of books. The book, The Path of the Masters, was published posthumously after the doctor had died. Now, the, the events surrounding Dr. Julian Johnson's death is something that I, this is very strange. Now, I have a somewhat personal connection to the man who killed Dr. Julian Johnson. American climber Paul Petzold was in India to climb K2, and he befriended Dr. Johnson. They were they were friends, and, and it's my understanding that Paul Petzold looked up to him as a mentor. Now, Paul Petzold was a, among many other things, he was a climbing guide in the Tetons, and that's where I used to live, in right next to Grand Teton National Park. And Paul did a remarkable number of first descents in the Tetons and in the Wind River Range. Now, Paul had a home in Idaho. Now, when I was living in the small town of Driggs, Idaho, at that point, Paul was a very old man, but everyone knew him, and I never met him. He would spend his winters in Maine and his summers in the town I lived in. Now, he was a by all accounts, was a big-hearted guy. And and he was very much a mentor to me. He wrote two books. I read both of them. And, and he had a sort of philosophical way of traveling in the wilderness. And I really took that to heart. You know, I, I, I moved out west to become a climbing bum. So this hero of mine, in 1939, accidentally killed his friend, Dr. Julian Johnson. And it was an argument that was between Paul and someone else. And it is my understanding that a gun was pulled by someone else. And in the ensuing scuffle to get the gun away from the person, Paul is a big barrel-chested grizzly bear of a man. And he must have been enormously strong at that chapter in his life as a young man. And he grabbed the gun out of the hand and then, and the gun was never fired. But um, in the scuffle, Dr. Julian Johnson, who was a frail old man at the time, was knocked down and died, and he was knocked down by Paul. So this is a story that has reverberated through the climbing community in the West for decades, many decades. Uh, Paul died in 1999, and I never had a chance to meet him. There was one point I was in um, a little store. Now, now the main street of my little town is very small, and I walked into the store, and the woman behind the counter, Linda, who I knew very well, she said, Paul was just in here. He was just in here. And I ran out into the street, and I ran up and down the street both directions. I never met him. I never saw him. And, um, and I'm saddened that I never did. Now, in a way, there's a synchronicity that someone that I consider a hero accidentally killed someone that Anne Eller considers a hero. And we talked a lot about this, and a lot of personal stuff came up in our long conversation, but I had to include this here. Now, if anyone wants to read more, there is an excellent book that I just got in the lead-up to this interview titled The Mystery of Dr. Johnson's Death, A Spiritual Scandal in the Punjab. And the author is David Christopher Lane. And in this short little book, the author really, really tries to uncover what happened. And by all accounts, it was an accident. Okay, forgive me for this interruption. I had to get this out. Back to the interview. Well, I, I will just interject this. You're probably going to edit this out too. But um, 
I have a headache right now, which is my indication that the ETs are here and have been overseeing this interview. Sometimes when they're here and they're that close, I get a headache. And what do you sense is going on? I'm, I, I'm totally open to keeping this in, but what do you sense is going on? Oh, I just think they're here to, I don't know, get this information out or make this connection or something. How strange, how strange. There's something that's important about this connection. Well, it's connected to me in a way. Uh, yes. I, I definitely, I quote Paul Petzelt all the time, and, and, uh, and he's quite a hero to me. Well, that's something. And, and okay. Even though he has this, this cloud over his life. Hmm. Oh, my gosh, we went all around the block here, and let me just bring it back to him. Um, uh, so, have you seen the TV show... Project Blue Book. No, I have not. I I didn't have the History Channel, and then they were on later in the evening. And I go to bed very early, so I said, "Oh, the heck with it." I, I didn't want to see what Hollywood would do to the story, and I thought, "My God, you've lived it. You don't need to see it from Hollywood." So. I didn't watch it, and so many people have asked me, did you watch it? What did you think about it? What did you think about it? But I didn't, so... You know, I just a few weeks ago, I did an interview with Paul Hynek, and he talked about the TV show, and he's a consultant on the show, and he's sneaking little things in there. You know, one of the things you'll probably like is there's a scene where... Um, the actor who plays Dr. Heineck, and he always wears the hat and the trench coat and, and the glasses, and he's got a scruffy little beard. And, and so he's at a door, and he's pounding on the door, and he can't get in, the door's locked, and he goes, confound it. And people who knew Dr. Heineck got back to him and said, like, that's exactly what he would say. Yes, he didn't swear, and um, <laughs> so that's about what he would say, that's for sure. And that came from his son Paul sharing that, so... Well, that's probably why Paul called me eventually. <laughs> I hadn't heard from him since 1985. And he called and said, gee, we haven't talked for a long time. And I said, my God, you had just gotten your first job at the bank across the street. And he had just graduated from college uh, at that time. And so it was such a surprise to get a call from him. Oh, that's wonderful. And so I, when I talked to him, I said, you know, I had a handful of questions and I had read your book. And when I was prepping the interview for Paul, I got your book on Kindle. The paper book is in storage. And so I was referring to your book when I was prepping the interview for Paul. And I asked him, I said, do you know Ann Eller? And he said, of course, I haven't seen Ann in years. And so that was quite probably the reason he, he gave you a call. I'm sure that was why he did. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, but before we end this here, there's one thing I do want to say is that early on you brought up the term volunteer, like people are here on earth as volunteers. And why, why do you say that? Well, I think one of the reasons I say that is because I had a dream about being in a group of people and they were talking about this planet that needed help and who would be willing to go? And it was going to be pretty dire. It was going to be pretty spooky, going to be pretty scary toward the end. But they needed they needed us to be there to help. And, oh, well, I just shot my hand up real quick in the back of the room and said, I'll go. 
And so did many others in that room say they would go. So I, I feel that those of us, not only in the ET UFO field, but a lot in the medical field and a lot in the technological field, are beings that have come here to help the Earth get through this point in time. Now, the reason I asked this was because in 2018, in the fall of 2018, I did a hypnotic regression with Yvonne Smith in California, and I was oh, trying I to... Know, I know Yvonne. I was in Geneva with Yvonne. Oh, my word. I, I spoke at the same conference, the, the first intergalactic peace conference with her. She's a this lovely, like soft-spoken woman. Ago, yes. Two years ago, in June. Oh, wow. Two oh, years yes. ago in June. So that would have been right around just within a few months of the session that I did with her. Oh, God, it really is a small world. And I had known Yvonne on and off through um, meeting her at conferences over the years. So I, in the session, uh, people on the show here have heard this. I will tell you. I'll tell you the full version, and I'll give an abridged version for the for the okay. audio. Okay, this is Mike. I am chiming in one more time during the editing. Now, this story where that Anne told in a dream, she said that she felt like she was a volunteer. Now, this is very, very similar to the emotions and feelings I had during a hypnosis session. Some stuff emerged under hypnosis. I have told it probably more times than I should here on this show. But uh, it it's, for me, it's an important story. I'm very, very cautious to treat it as fact. But while under hypnosis, a story emerged that I had been taken aboard a big round craft, a flying saucer, and that I, I was taken on board the craft. And I won't go into the details here, but here's what emerged. I had lived a previous life in some other place, whether another planet or another dimension or another realm, and I came here to this life here on Earth. I incarnated as a human being to perform some role. And the beings, the beings on board this craft, this flying saucer, were very clear that I volunteered for it. Okay, now I also posted an excerpt from an audiobook in a previous episode of The Unseen. And I will put a link to that previous episode in the show notes. That episode is titled Audiobook Excerpts from Hidden Experience, Part 3. And it was posted on January 8th of 2020. Okay, please forgive my interruptions. Back to the interview with Anne. Like, why didn't you tell me? And they just said, you volunteered for this. And <laughs> and it's really hard to listen to because I get very, very emotional in the audio. So that's when you said that in that dream, you said the people or the whoever it would be, the, the other beings, the other intelligences, like said, this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard work. Who can volunteer for this? Yep. Never promised us a rose garden, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So that one's tough, I have to say, to proceed forward and just go on with your daily life. So I have a tough time kind of integrating that memory from hypnosis into my life. But I think that you should look forward to 
lots and lots of accolades and a wonderful reunion and celebration when it's all over. I can only hope, yes. That would be nice, yes. I feel Maybe like I'm doing good you work. And I will meet. Pardon? Maybe that's when you and I will meet as that celebration. Well, we've already met, but that was 10 years ago. Yes, we can meet again. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Hey, is there anything you want to share at the end here? Gosh. Um, I don't think so. Um, ex except, I think the, the important thing for all of us is to remember that there is no death, that what may be lying ahead may be difficult to go through, but we have the ability, we have the strength, we have the, um, and we have the help. We have lots and lots of help from the ETs uh, and from our, our brothers and sisters right here on earth. And we're all gonna go through this together. And the most important thing is to help each other. Um, and remember that it's going to be an opportunity to um, move forward, a great opportunity to move forward spiritually. So uh, I think that's the message at this point. No death. We'll just go on to our next incarnation. And um, uh, these are all important things. Yes, yes. At the beginning of this interview, uh, I had a very formal set of questions. I didn't get to all of them. Um, this turned into more of just a discussion, and I'm grateful for that. It felt like much more of a discussion than a formal interview, and that's what I much prefer. Good, good. Well, I've enjoyed it, and I thank you for the opportunity, and I'm delighted to have met you again. Yes, and I'm delighted to have met you the second time, too. So this has been wonderful. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Now, before this episode ends, I want to include a few more things. The first is the account in Wyoming that begins on the McGuire Ranch. Now, this is a powerfully strange account, and I have talked to other people, many other people, and they have told me of eerily similar experiences. Now, there is a lot more to this account that she details very thoroughly in her book. There's more on the meaning of the five symbols, as well as the dialogue that emerged during the strange channeling in the dorm room. But, but what I really want to say is what she said about the shape-shifting of a person, right? So she, she witnessed and watched and described the shape-shifting of a person's face. Actually, she said it was from them from above the hips. But this is something I have heard before. And this is from close friends who have had very similar kinds of experiences. This morphing of a person, of a human uh, oftentimes a person with UFO contact experiences, this morphing from human to alien is strangely common. Now, I, I don't want to say too much. <laughs> I'm not really ready to share this story yet, but I have had an experience where someone has told me that they have seen me morph into a gray alien and they saw it happen to me twice. I don't want to go into it, but 
from my own personal experiences and the many, many people I have talked to, I trust Anne in this, this seemingly outrageous story. I also want to apologize for the choppy quality to the overall interview. Uh, when we were talking, Anne and I got a little bit gabby, and we were really chatting back and forth, and 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 it felt like the way I cleaned up the interview was something I needed to do. And I apologize that I interjected along the way, but that that's the best way I could solve it. Now, before I leave, I want to say this. After reading the book, it is obvious that Anne followed a spiritual path, and we barely touched on this in the interview. And and this seems to play into the strange events of 1985. Um, in her book, she said she was meditating a lot before that experience happened on the McGuire Ranch. I'm going to read two passages from Anne's book, Dragon in the Sky, Prophecy from the Stars. I was practicing the Sant Matt spiritual lifestyle during the time I worked with Dr. Heineck. I was in this heightened sense of consciousness at the time I went to the conference in Wyoming. I was living in grace and mindful of my spiritual lifestyle when I had that profound experience with the Sisters of Light. And now this from the very end of Anne's book. As a result of the many spiritual teachings and experiences, I have come to the conclusion that our purpose in life is to learn unconditional love for all sentient beings. There are no boundaries, no rules, no commandments, and no creeds. There is only love. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.